uh, for four months now. And uh, we're in the process of getting acclimated to everything that is Bakersfield, California. And uh, we, ha- we had a very interesting experience, uh, uh, a sort of welcome to Bakersfield moment this past Tuesday. We were out at a soccer practice, uh, coaching four and five-year-olds. And towards the end of the practice, we look up and there's this, this wall of smoke or something that was heading our way. And we weren't quite sure what that was. And everything was calm and quiet and peaceful. And then all of a sudden, it all just broke loose. This like dust storm kicked up out of nowhere. The kids are screaming. Soccer moms are running to the vans. It, it, there's just pandemonium going on everywhere. And, and I thought, okay, I guess this is Bakersfield. So welcome to Bakersfield. And, and this is a dust storm. And uh, uh, it is what it is. We're glad to be here. And if that's the worst of it, uh, then, then we look forward to many, many years uh, living in this town. And, and connecting with the people that are here. Uh, with that said, why don't we do this? Why don't we turn to, in our scriptures to 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to look at chapter 2, the first eight verses this morning. <clears throat> As you're turning there, just keep in mind that this is a letter that Paul has written to uh, a very young and new church filled with very recent converts. And he's writing them to to defend his ministry with them and to encourage them that their election, that their calling, that their faith is for sure. And you'll hear the words of of Paul in this. You'll hear his heart, his heartbeat for these people and how convinced he is of his ministry. Let's read God's word, starting with verse 1 of chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach this text, as we approach this calling to share our lives, to share the gospel with those who do not know it, Lord, we pray that our minds would be bound to your word, that our hearts would be pricked by your spirits, and that our wills would be transformed and conformed so that we may go out from here desiring to see great conversion in the hearts and lives of those who are dead, who are lost, who are hopeless. We pray that you would bless this time. As we approach your word, we ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. And so as it's been said that we have been here for four months. And so we're still just getting the handle of this town. What makes it tick? What makes people think? Uh, what do they do? And, and a question I often ask people that I come into contact with is, how would you describe Bakersfield? How would you describe it in sort of a, an insider's perspective as one who's lived here for some, so many years or have been born and raised in Bakersfield? How would you describe it? And there are really two types of answers that I get. There's one type of answer that is positive. It says Bakersfield is a great place to live. It's a great place to raise a family. You feel so connected. It's safe. You just have a great opportunity to live with your family here. Now, the other side of it, the other camp that I often hear is this pessimistic, I can't wait to get out of Bakersfield. I can't stand it here. There's nothing to do. I mean, these are competing dichotomies of one town, of one city. Is it a great place to live? Or are you clamoring to get out of here? That's sort of an insider's view. I think I have the privilege of looking at Bakersfield as an outsider, looking in, able to sort of maybe pull back some of the curtain and, and, and peer into, this, into the home that is Bakersfield. And as an outsider, I, I also see, in a sense, a tale of two cities. As an outsider, I look at the Bakersfield and I see this, this small, tightly knitted together group where everyone knows everyone and everything about everyone. And there's a lot of interconnectedness and a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, shifting around of where I'm going to hang out on Sunday. But it's a, it's a group that has hope. They have the hope of the gospel. But they're certainly wound very tight. Well, there's a second Bakersfield, a bigger Bakersfield, a greater Bakersfield. And this greater Bakersfield is a, a larger mass of people. And they go about life and they move through life like they're an amoeba, constantly shifting and changing, searching for something that will either entertain or it will help them uh, enjoy recreation or make some sort of sense of what it is to live in this world. And, and, and while they move and shift and change and, and, and adapt to their culture, and they do so with this nagging thought that wages on their heart and on their soul that there's no hope in a sense this larger bakersfield is hopeless and this smaller bakersfield has the hope and then as an outsider looking in and again just being here for only four months you see how little interaction occurs. How little intentionality happens from those who live in small Bakersfield going to those who live in greater Bakersfield. Our passage this morning, by God's grace, will challenge us in that. Look again at verse 8. I would ask you, as we look at this verse you would honestly, for those of you who have lived in Bakersfield your whole life and would say it's a great place to raise a family and that you have been a part of small Bakersfield for a very long time, does verse 8 describe 
your desires for those who live in the greater Bakersfield. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you became very dear to us. Can you say that? Does that describe you? Does that describe your heart for the people of Bakersfield? The challenge that we're faced with is that we are to share our lives. That we are to share the gospel as we share our lives. And sometimes we need to be reminded of what it is that we are to to share. Sometimes we need to be reminded of how we are to go about sharing it. And sometimes we need to just see simply told what it's going to cost. This morning I want us to look at that as we consider this passage. I want us to consider again afresh and anew what it is that we are to share. I want us to consider how we are to go about sharing that with the lives of others in this town. I don't want us to go naive, naively into this adventure. I want us to consider the costs. Consider what will occur when we share. Hopefully you will find that when you share your lives, that regardless of the cost, that the gospel is far greater. And that lives will be transformed. So what is it that we are to share? Seems rather elementary, doesn't it? It seems like I shouldn't have to come up here and say this. And in some respects, I don't because you know You know what it is that we are to share. We're to share the gospel. What does it say in verse 8? It says that not only were we ready to share with you the gospel of God. And this gospel from this passage we find is that it is of God. It's not of man. This gospel is from God. It's not from man. We didn't invent this. This gospel is about God, saving man. It's grace over works. It's life over death. It's hope over hopelessness. We can think back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When Paul gives us this this clarion description of the gospel in the first few verses, he says, Oh, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And what did he preach? He says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. The gospel of what Christ has done on behalf of His people. Paul reminds the Corinthians 
He reminds and encourages the Thessalonians. And by uh, implication, we are to be reminded of what it is that we possess. This tremendous hope that in our sins, we were rescued. That God came and rescued us when we had no business being rescued. Do we feel the weight of that? Do we look at other people with that truth on our minds? Do we interpret life through the gospel that God saved sinners? Turning back to Thessalonians, Looking at this gospel, we see that God has entrusted it to us. Look again at verses 3 and 4. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. That this great, life-changing truth of God rescuing sinners has been entrusted to the ones who have been rescued. And that word, to be entrusted to us, means that we believe that this, that this truth that has been entrusted to us is just that, true. We don't believe a lie or an error or something that's insufficient or inadequate or improbable. We believe truth. It's been entrusted to us. What is it that we are to do with it but to speak it? That it fills the content of our language, of our words. That it is on our lips. We live in a culture that is very challenging to do this. We have people who are pursuing the American dream. But the hope is that if I just live a good life and I'm a relatively conservative person and I don't get into too much trouble and I accumulate just enough to keep everybody happy in my home, that this is it, that this is as good as it gets. yet we have truth to say that no, that is not as good as it gets. That is so not good. It's empty. What is it that we are to share? We are to share the fullness of the gospel of God that rescues sinners from an aimless hopeless life? Are we burdened for that? Are we burdened to do that in this town? Let me make that even smaller. Are we burdened to do this on our street with the 10 neighbors around us? 
who come home from work, pull into their garage, put the garage door down, and mindlessly spend the rest of their night trying to entertain themselves. We burden to burst into their lives because we have truth. Not a truth, but the truth. It's been entrusted to us. Are we willing and desirous to share it? But we are not just simply to go and speak at people and into their lives, but that's a part of it. We are certainly to go and share our lives with others. So what is it that we are to share? It's the gospel, yes, but it's the gospel with us. It's our lives and the gospel that we're sharing with the people. That it's not completely void of any sort of connection or community or relationship. That we're pouring out ourselves, spending ourselves, as Jason had prayed, so that we could share the truth. Paul says that we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but our own selves. A better translation of that would be that we were willing to share with you our very souls. Not just some casual conversation, but that we would be opening up our lives to you. Look at what the gospel has done here. Consider the truth that I tell you. Our souls would be spent in an effort to share the gospel. It becomes very personal for us. Because we open ourselves up to that, we can be deeply wounded. But we open up ourselves because we want to get into people's lives and share with them this truth. My wife and I have recently just been wrestling with how can we get into the lives of just our neighbors, let alone this big mass of people in Bakersfield. And we were struggling. We would take our kids out and, and just ride our bikes around in the cul-de-sac and let the kids play. And we would think, all right, once we're outside and we see other people outside, we'll just get, pick up conversation, get into their lives, start sharing our lives with them, invite them over, just build these relationships. We just figured we'll just start with this one street. But we would do that and we would go out there and we'd realize we were the only ones outside. And I would wait and I would do all my yard work on Saturday thinking, ah, oh, you know what, great, I'll get out there, I'll see the other people working on their yard or on their house or on their garden or if they're working on our car or something, I'll go over and I'll offer my help. Not that I can do much when it comes to a car, but I can dig, so show me where to dig. <laughs> but I get outside and it's 104 degrees and I realize I'm out here with a bunch of gardeners. <laughs> and they're all yelling at me because I've got weeds everywhere. And I'm pleading with them, you don't understand, it was orange two months ago. I'm happy it's green. <laughs> we look for ways to share. And so we were just so burdened. We've got to do something to get these people outside of their homes. 
And so last Sunday, we decided we're just going to do a cul-de-sac cookout. And we're just going to get a bunch of meat and throw it on a grill. And sure enough, we went around during that week and said, hey, we're just going to Sunday afternoon, come on down and just hang out with us. We're going to have a cookout and it's just going to be in the cul-de-sac. Bring your kids. There'll be games and other random stuff. Just hang out. Let's just hang out. And we went up and down the street. Our kids were so excited to do that. They're so excited to go invite people to come out and do this. And the reason we were doing it wasn't just to have some party, but we wanted to get into their lives. We wanted to share our lives with them. And so last Sunday, we had 17 adults and 10 kids come down from our street. Just these few homes. And we hung out. And we shared our lives with one another. There were several families from Sovereign Grace that were there, and they were awesome. Because you know what they did? They played with all these kids that were everywhere. And Laura and I were able to, we were freed up and we were able to converse and connect with our neighbors. This one afternoon, I learned that one of my neighbors' business just went under and he doesn't know what he's going to do. Another one has moved back into her home, her parents' home. She's divorced, has a kid. Her life's just been put in an upheaval. It's a wreck. Others have just moved to this country and have only been here for so long, and they're still trying to figure everything out, and especially the language, and they're struggling. Another family, I learned that they're being foreclosed. These people share their lives. And we were able to share with them, so we followed up over the course of the week with them. Hey, we're praying for you. I'm going to be praying for that. Is there anything I can do to help? Can I get into your life? While I can't help with all the symptoms of the things that you're struggling with, I can certainly bring to you truth. And one couple has become very dear to us. They're from Iran. And we just recently kicked off an evangelistic small group in our home on Thursday night. And they came. And they talked. Boy, did they talk. And the questions and the things that they were wrestling with we're so excited that we're able to share our lives with them because we can share with them the gospel, the truth that God will rescue. We're willing to spend ourselves in doing that. We're willing to share the gospel as we share our lives, and we're willing to share our lives as we share the gospel. And is that something that you desire for you? Is that something that you desire in your neighborhood? Because you know what? I'm pretty sure that my neighbors are not all that different than yours. And they're all going through some major life, impacting, transforming, changing, challenging moments. What? a time to be a church planter. But more than that, what a time to be a Christian who's armed with the gospel. As we go and as we share, 
we need to be reminded of what it is that we share. But we also need to be challenged in the manner in which we share it. How do we share? How is it that we are to share the gospel and our lives? Well, our passage gives us two prevailing thoughts. One is that we are bold with this gospel, that we are bold to declare it, that we are bold to speak the truth. Coupled with that is that we do so in love, that we are motivated by love for God and love for these people that we are sharing our lives with. A balance of truth and love, boldness and gentleness, straightforward and truth, but done so with the touch of grace, compassion, and mercy. Because what we're doing is telling people the way that we're, you're living is wrong. It's insufficient. It's, it's taking you to hell. Consider truth, the gospel. Plead and declare. We find that God is the source of our boldness. In verse 2, we see that Paul is sharing the difficulties that he's experienced. He says, but though we have already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel in the midst of much conflict. Where does the boldness originate? It originates from God, that God is the giver of that. As we dwell on the richness of the gospel, as we dwell on the richness of God and his grace, as we grow and as we mature and as our faith is bolstered, God is giving us boldness to declare it, to speak it. Paul intentionally uses those words, declare and speak, that we actually have to say it to people. But this boldness also comes in the form of an appeal. Verse 3, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or an attempt to deceive. An appeal, pleading, an entreaty. You're, you're, you're not begging, but you're pleading on behalf of them. This is the truth. This is the gospel. What you're trusting in now is only going to bring you to death. This gospel will bring you to life. We're bold enough to cross that line. And I know most of you probably know what I mean by this. This relationship that you've built with, with either a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, or even a family member. And that you get to that moment where you realize, I need to speak some truth into this person's life. But I know as soon as I do that, it's going to change it all. Everything changes after this. 
Are we willing to step over that line and in that boldness declare and plead the gospel to them? These are the things that we are challenged with in life. As we, as we live this Christian life, as we pursue holiness and godliness and discipleship, that we don't lose sight of this evangelism, this desire to share, this desire to be bold, to declare and plead to sinners hope. That's the content of our, of our mouths and the, the content of our lives also has bearing on how we are to share. And while we are to be bold in what we declare and bold in what we say, we need to be filled with integrity and love in the manner in which we live. Looking at verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. What is Paul doing here? Well, Paul is defending himself in the way that he and these other missionaries had lived among the Thessalonians. They were being accused that they had ulterior motives. That their integrity was for show. And Paul had to come to the defense of himself and these missionaries and say, you know otherwise because we lived with you. We shared our lives with you. We were open and vulnerable and you saw who we were. Now, a lot of people in our day and age are very critical of the church and of their many, many criticisms of the church. One of the most frequent and pervasive criticism is the fact that we're all what? A bunch of hypocrites. And that so many people have been burned by somebody with the church or family or a friend or or, or they just have been hurt and wounded along the way. And I'm not saying that those things have not happened. By all means, I'm sure they have. And maybe we've even been a part of actually doing that to someone. And we've turned them off to the gospel by the manner in which we live. And I'm not saying that we're all free from that. But if we're desiring to share the gospel with others, and we desire to share with them our lives, how much more mindful will we be of how we live? Not that we are performing, but that we are preaching the gospel to ourselves daily. And that the motivations of our heart are like Paul's, that we are motivated to please God and to glorify Him and to enjoy Him. And then by doing so, that we desire to love these people. The Thessalonians could attest to the motives of, of Paul. God was witness to the motives of Paul. 
because God's or because Paul's life was was bare and spent and before the people and before God. Maybe that's where we struggle. Maybe part of our struggle in, in this desiring to share not only the gospel but our lives is that we don't want to share it, to open ourselves up to this. To let people close and to get close to others because it gets messy and it's challenging and it's hard and it's difficult. Your motives will get called into question. Your character will be attacked. Are you willing to spend your lives sharing? That brings us to this this third thing we must consider. That as we share, there will be great costs. As we consider what it is that we are to share and the manner in which we are to share it, we need to consider the fact that there will be great costs on us. Sharing our lives and sharing the gospel will bring suffering. It will put us into conflict. We will be wounded. We will be hurt. We will be maligned. Suffering we receive will be spiritual suffering. Because we are inviting ourselves as we share the gospel and as we share our lives, we are in a sense putting ourselves into the spiritual battle. That there is a war waging with those who the enemy has in his camp fighting against what the gospel is proclaiming to do in this world. And we will put ourselves in harm's way when we go to share. That's what happened with Paul. Look back at verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, we had the boldness in God to declare to you the gospel. They had suffered greatly at Philippi. You can find that account in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke and other missionaries go to Thessalonica. Excuse me, go to uh, Philippi. And they go there and they, they encounter people and they, they go to the place where people are and they want to invest into people's lives. And while they're doing that, they connect with this young woman named Lydia and she comes to Christ. She comes to faith. There's this conversion and rejoicing and they gather together to go pray. What a great start. New missionaries into this town just arrived and we have this conversion. But there was this slave girl that was possessed by a demon that these gentlemen had hired or that had owned and were using to uh, make a, a, a tremendous amount of profit because she was a soothsayer and she was making these uh, bold predictions of the future and people would pay to hear them. And Paul, a great verse, 
had become very annoyed with her, said, in the name of Jesus Christ, get out of her. And these men lost their, their financial windfall, and they brought these false accusations against Paul and Silas, and they brought them before the magistrate and rallied up a mob, and this mob was screaming against them. And, and next thing you know, Paul and Silas, before everything you know, even makes any sense of what's happening, they're stripped down and beaten. Then they're thrown into jail, into stocks. So their beaten bodies have no way of getting rest, no way of relieving the pain because they're, they're in a horrible position, chained to this wall. Why did this happen to them? Because they shared their lives in the gospel. And that sharing has an enemy. And that enemy wants to bring suffering to us. They get out of jail in a miraculous story, and I'll come back to, that, to the end of that story here in a few minutes. And they go off to Thessalonica, and they go knowing that this very well could happen all over again. Because when you're ready to spend your life sharing the gospel, sharing your lives with those who don't know you, you know that you're putting yourself into the position to suffer. And Jesus warned of this in Matthew chapter 10. You want to keep your spot in First Thessalonians and uh, move over to Matthew chapter 10. You'll find that Jesus gives a warning to his disciples and to all those who would believe and follow after him in the future that there will be suffering. Chapter 10, looking through <clears throat> passage of 16 through 25. There are just a a few key phrases that I want you to to see in verse as he's warning and and, and promising, in a sense, to these disciples and to these believers and to us that there will be these horrible times of suffering. In verse 22, he says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And in verse 23, he says, When they persecute you. And in verse 24, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor his servant above his master. So how much more will they align the servants? They have maligned the master. And then in 1 Peter, you don't have to turn there. In 1 Peter 5, we find that that Peter is is reminding the leaders of the church and, and us as believers of it, of the, of the gospel, that the devil, Satan himself, is prowling, looking for someone to devour. Suffering will come when we share. Conflict will also come when we share. Much conflict. At the end of verse 2, back in First Thessalonians, he says that we had the boldness in God and our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. This conflict is this intense fight and struggle. And this word munch actually has a qualitative and a quantitative idea behind it. That this much will be intense conflict. And there will be a lot of it. And the conflict will come because of your message. And the conflict will be around your message and people will attack the message that you have. 
And when they're done attacking the message that, you'll, they'll have, that you have, they'll be, begin attacking the messenger. And they'll be calling into, con- into question your character, your integrity, and your life. And Paul was dealing with this opposition here with the Thessalonians. That they were calling into question the integrity of the missionaries who were there. They were calling into question the message of the missionaries who were there. They were attacking and bringing much conflict, struggle, and fight into the people's lives who have come to Christ. And you might be thinking to yourself, why would I sign up for that? I mean, you just got done saying that that what we have to share is this gospel, this great and tremendous and amazing story of God saving us and the weight that is associated with that. And you're telling me that I got to be bold in telling this to others, that I got to declare it. And not only that, I got to live this life out in front of them so that they can see it in me. And I got to do so in such an open and honest way. And I got to let people in. And I don't really want to do that either. But now you're saying if I do all of those things, that it's just going to put me in a position of suffering and of conflict. I don't want that. Fortunately, there's one more effect of us sharing the gospel in our lives. And that there is conversion. That people's lives are saved that us spending ourselves to share the gospel and to share our lives is indeed not in vain how does paul start off this chapter for you yourselves know brothers that our coming to you was not in vain It was not empty-handed. We didn't come to you with empty hands. We came with armfuls of the gospel. We came with something that measured, that was so immeasurably more important than any conflict that we were going to interact with that we came and we gave to you this richness, this immeasurable worth that has so far more resources than any suffering that we will receive, any conflict that we will go through. That we did not come empty-handed. It wasn't in vain. But not only that aspect of vain, but it produced results. That our coming to you actually has results. And it's you, Paul says. You are the results of us coming to you. What does he say later in chapter 2, looking at verses 13? Verse 13, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. When Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke and the other missionaries showed up into Thessalonica, these people were unbelievers. He is now calling them believers. It was not in vain. The costs did not outweigh the call. 
Look earlier in chapter 1. He says, look at the end of chapter 1, verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And he describes what happened with the Thessalonians. How you turned to God from idols. Idols that are dead and hopeless. They turned from them. And they turned to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath of God. They went from dead to life. It's worth the costs to share. There will be results. Take hope. Take courage. Be bold because it's not in vain. Share your lives because it's not in vain. Endure suffering because it's not in vain. Take on the conflicts that come into your life because it is not in vain. God will be glorified and his people will indeed be saved. And I ask, will you be affectionately desirous of Bakersfield? Will you share the gospel to Bakersfield? Will you share your lives with people Bakersfield? Will Bakersfield become very dear to you. May it be so. Let us pray. Great God, we thank you for the gospel. It is the power to save. It is your righteousness revealed. It is you and your righteousness saving us in our deadness. We thank you that the gospel has transformed many of our hearts, that we have gone from deadness to life. And I pray right now for all of us in here that we would have the boldness and the passion and the love to share this gospel with this town, with this city, with our neighborhoods and our coworkers and our peers and our friends and our perfect strangers, that we would be willing to share our lives because the gospel is worth it. It is not in vain. Oh, Lord, we rejoice that our work and our strife and our conflict is not in vain because you are a great God and your gospel is great. We thank you and we praise you. In the name of our risen and reigning and ruling Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.